0: While I get uh, adjusted here, you can be turning in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, where we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 2. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, the book of First Peter is very much concerned with the holiness of God's people as they live in new places. They've branched out. God's people are beginning to branch out from... ...what used to be the epicenter of God's kingdom uh, in Jerusalem... ...but now the Christian church is beginning to permeate the entire world... ...as churches are expanding, as missionaries are going out and planting seeds... And we're seeing uh, new converts come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these communities where multiple people come to know Jesus, they begin gathering and they begin serving the Lord. And it's in that context that Peter writes compelling them to come out of the world and look a little bit different. He tells them to be holy as God is holy. He tells them in the beginning of chapter 2 that they have a new identity, and that identity is the temple, and it's built on the cornerstone that we just sang about, Christ alone cornerstone, and that each of you as believers, and each of them, the original audience as believers, are being built up into a spiritual house, the word tells us. And so it's in that context that Peter continues to exhort the christian churches that are expanding and flourishing in the world. So if you will turn with me to 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 11 when you get that, uh, go ahead and stand and we'll read this passage together. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does to us and for us. Lord, thank you for challenging us this morning, uh, Lord. And we anticipate that you are going to do mighty things in your people because of the power and magnitude of your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and chief cornerstone. Amen. You may be seated, like many biblical writers, oftentimes you'll find theology preceding practicality, and that's true in what's just taken place here in First uh, Peter chapter two. He begins by giving them a theological truth. He says, "You are the temple of God." He says, "You are the priesthood of God." He identifies them in a certain way theologically, but now he's going to turn and start saying, okay, because of that, here's what you are to do. Here's the practical side of it. Here's the application of that theological truth. Uh, It's very important that we balance both of those. There are some armchair theologians that sit all day and think all day and read all day, and they learn and they study and they grow intellectually, but they do nothing with it. And that's no better than someone who does not know a thing about God and goes out and tries as hard as they can to serve him. Both are dangerous. Both are uh, not the way that God has intended for the Christian life to look. The way that we are to live and the way we are to conduct ourselves is by learning about God, learning who he is, learning who we are, learning theological truths that should now guide and shape our activity in the world. And from there we launch out and we do. We are not hearers only, but also doers of the word, as James compels us uh, to go out and to live out our faith. In this particular passage uh, this morning, I'm going to dissect this into four different sections. And the first one is the limitation of self-satisfaction. This entire passage, I believe, is honing in on limitation, self-limitation. And so what are some ways that we as the church and as the early churches, they were blossoming throughout uh, the various communities. What did they need to do? What did they need to restrain? What did they need to cut out of their lives? What did they need to put to death in their own lives in order to bring the most glory to God? And we see the first thing is the limitation of self-satisfaction. If you go back to verse 11, it says, Beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter tells them that they are in a battle, they're in a war. And the war isn't with external forces necessarily, it's not a physical battle where guns and ammunition are needed or swords and shields, but rather. There are temptations within every person's heart, mind, and soul that are waging war against them. The flesh, as Peter often refers to, is often waging war against the spirit. And uh, if you've lived in the flesh for more than five minutes, you understand this completely. We are subject to passions of various kinds. Now, Peter doesn't have any one particular passion uh, that he's emphasizing here. Oftentimes, the biblical writers will kind of Flesh that out for you. They'll hone in on particular passions. Paul will address uh, sexuality as a passion that has to be dealt with in the Christian narrative. Uh, they'll bring out drunkenness and uh, uh, greed and other, other passions that may creep into the Christian life. And it's a reminder that just because you're saved and just because you've been born again, as the audience of Peter, he's already addressed that, that they have been born again. They've been born into a new nature. It does not mean that the old nature has completely been vanquished. It still exists. It still is having an influence over the people of God. And so you have to stand strong and you have to fight. The Christian walk is not a passive walk. There's a common phrase out there that became very, very popular, and I want you to forsake this phrase. okay? It sounds good on the surface, but it's actually quite evil. It says, let go and let God. Let go and let God. And it comes from Keswick theology that comes out of England, and it's very much. It goes against the grain of Scripture because Scripture doesn't tell us to let go and let God. It tells us to participate, to be active. It tells us to put to death the flesh. It tells us to fight and to wage war. It's not a letting go. And I know most of us that maybe have used that phrase mean nothing bad by it. Uh, We mean that God's in control and we're going to surrender ourselves to him. I I get that. But if you look at the theological, uh, the whole Table that's set before that phrase and that slogan, you get this very apathetic Christianity that really is not engaged and active. But Christianity is not passive, it's active. As far as our salvation is concerned, that might be a little more passive. Okay, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and then He made us alive. The Bible doesn't say we add anything to that. In that sense, we can let go and let God. Uh, we don't even get to let go. You don't tell a dead corpse to let go. Okay, they're just dead. But now we've been made alive and now you've been called to battle. And now you've been told to, in the King James, gird up your loins. You've been told to get ready to wage war and to go off and to fight. And so this morning he's telling you that you need to limit your self-satisfaction. And this is, it's like Peter looked ahead into the 21st century and he spoke to the American church because we're bad about self-satisfaction we love to satisfy ourselves we're the richest people that have ever existed ever we're the richest people that currently exist it doesn't matter who you are in the room right now you're the richest people in the world and because of that we get what we want when we want it whenever we want it it's hard to christmas shop for people anymore because they have everything that they could ever want Unless you're going to buy them like a new $280,000 boat or something. They've already got it. Okay? You don't need to buy them any more socks. They wanted socks. They'd go that day and get them because they have the money to do that. We satisfy ourselves. We eat as much as we want to eat. We drink as much as we want to drink. Whatever we want to drink. And we satisfy ourselves. And we forget sometimes that true satisfaction is not found in material things and there's a part of me that's thankful when economic crisis may occur or when there's a situation in which we have to do without you know COVID when we were all shut down and we were all in our houses there was a little bit of thankfulness there that Lord thank you for reminding me that this life is not about the things I can go out and buy and the recreational things I can go out and do. But this life is about serving you. And when I try to find my satisfaction and things external to God. Then it's then that I've strayed away from his perfect will. And it's the same thing here. He, he commends them. Because this people that Peter is writing to have been called out as sojourners and exiles. They are not a part of this world anymore. And what you're going to find in this passage and in 1 Peter in general is that you have the kingdom of God, the people existing as members of the kingdom of God are still living in kingdoms of this world. It's a very strange tension that we have to deal with because we are in the world. There is still a coffee shop right there, and coffee tastes good, and I have money to buy it, and so can I go get one? I did this morning, so if it's a sin, then I got to ask for forgiveness right now. But we still live with those tensions, with those temptations around us to please ourselves first. But yet we are people who are members of the kingdom of God. And we know that our true satisfaction is found in serving and honoring God. That's the tension that Peter is addressing here. He's saying you are not of this world. You may live in it, but you do not belong to it. And so abstain. Abstain and fight against this self-satisfaction that is wrapped up in the passions of God the human body. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And the word Gentiles can be translated various different ways. Uh, Sometimes it says Gentile. Sometimes it says nations. Uh, I think the King James often will translate it barbarians. Uh, But you've got different ways of saying this. But I, I like nations because he is telling the people who are scattered abroad That wherever they are planted, whether they are in Pontus or Galatia or Rome or Spain, whether they're in Turkey, Asia Minor, or whether they're in Africa, wherever they are, even if they're in Alaska, they need to, as foreigners, as people who do not belong to those locations, as members of the kingdom of God, they need to keep their conduct Pure. They need to be holy as God is holy. They need to continue to maintain their priesthood status among the onlooking community and to continue to be the temple of God among those watching. Peter is very emphasized with that word see and observe and, and behold. He is very focused on the visual aspect of the Christian life. I was going to dive into that some today, but as I read on, I thought that would be more appropriate to uh, table until next week, because next week we're going to get into husbands and wives who don't share the same faith, where one is converted uh, and the other one's not converted, and Peter really puts an emphasis on what the other spouse sees, and so we're going to save that for later, but just know that that's important to Peter, that he is emphasizing. What is observed and what is seen by the onlooking community. So that's why he tells them to self limit their satisfaction and to find their satisfaction in Christ and let that be publicly observable because it is in that state that the onlooking community can see and can begin to uh, give glory to God. It says, There to abstain from passions of flesh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day visitation. And obviously the day of visitation is a reference to the last day. It's the day and it could be a reference even to salvation, perhaps when these people are converted and God visits them and the Holy Spirit indwells inside of them. So whether it's speaking of the judgment day or the day when they realize, wait a minute, there's something to this Christian religion. We are speaking evil against these people who are living in Rome or wherever they're at. We are calling them out as evildoers, but they can continue to live on in a Christian manner. They don't retaliate. They don't fight back. They don't get angry and ugly. They, they're martyrs, willing martyrs. I want some of that. I want what they've got because it's real. That's kind of what Peter is getting at here. They are looking, and so the churches are flourishing and spreading and advancing because of that good conduct that is being carried out. As a measure of the Christian faith. The next thing we see in this passage. Is the limitation of self-governance. Limitation of self-governance. It says in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor emperor as supreme. Or to the governor." as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, before I get into this little section here, I want to preface it with a few words of caution and uh, try to get everybody to holster their weapon, okay? Because this can get a little dicey. I believe we live in a culture that is more politically charged than any other time in human history. Not just are we divided, but I believe that Republican parties and Democratic parties and other political platforms have been elevated to the position of God for many people. It is what they worship because it is where all of their time, energy, and money goes. All they will do is watch their politically affiliated news program or listen to their politically affiliated radio talk show or surf the website or whatever it is that they do because day in and day out it's really all that matters to them. And when things don't go their way, it becomes doomsday. And when things go their way they think, all right, now we're now we're back on path. America is going to just become the most glorious thing in the world. But I want you to know Christian, wherever you sit, and I know the majority of you sit on one side. That's just kind of how it goes with conservative evangelical Christians. But I want you to know, whatever side you're on, you've got to understand this, that that political party is not synonymous with the kingdom of God. It's not. If it were synonymous with the kingdom of God, then we would be gathering here today to advance that political platform because we would know that that's how peace on earth is going to come about. We would know that that's how the salvation of humanity is going to come about. We would know that that's how goodness and light is going to permeate the entire world and rescue the perishing. But you've got to be honest with yourself that even if every person you wanted to sit in those seats in Congress and in the White House and in your local you know, assemblies, whatever position you're thinking of, If you were to have full control of placing people in there, you've got to know that that still would not bring about what the kingdom of God will bring about. They are not synonymous. And so when Peter addresses how the Christian church is to respond politically, he's not in any way trying to set up some political platform for which the kingdom of God can advance. He's saying as people in the kingdom of God, and as you're doing your own thing that the world rejects and doesn't understand, you are intersecting with the societies that you're in. And so we've got to lay out some ground rules. When you can go with the flow of society and when you cannot go with the flow of society. Here's when you can or how you can function in human societies and kingdoms and in democracies you know he doesn't address those here but i think the principles apply to us today this is how you can behave and how you should behave as a christian and and it has no bearing on where you sit politically today okay i'm not addressing what side you should be on or anything like that so don't pull your thing out of your holster you know and, and aim at me and get mad because people get mad i've had people walk out of this church mad because a political statement was dropped it just happens all the time. I'm not making political statements here. This is what the Bible says. Okay? This is what God says right here. He says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And human institution there really literally is human creation. And what it's getting at is those those authoritative positions that have been ordained by God. He's going to get into a lot of them, actually. Uh, he's going to talk here about emperors that rule. He's going to talk in chapter 3 about the, the household and how husbands have been given a role to lead in the household, and the wives are told uh, to be subject to their own husbands. So he's going to get into a lot of things, but he starts off politically. He says, you are not to govern yourself. Limit your self-governance. And that is something that they may have not had as difficult of a time with, but we have a very difficult time with. Our country was founded on rebellion and revolution. And there is rebellion and revolution running through our veins. And I feel it too. This, this hurts me as much as it hurts you. And Peter tells us to be subject to them. Okay, there are a few things we need to bring out of this. First off, uh, the word subject is the same word that's used throughout the Bible a lot of times that means that we've got to, you know, submit and obey. Submit and obey. Uh, Luke 10, 17, it says the demons were subject to the disciples as they went out in the name of Jesus Christ and were commanding them to come out and they were casting out demons. They were subject to them. That's the kind of subjection that Peter is calling for as we stand before human government. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how all things were subject to Christ and how Christ is going to give them all to be subject to God. Okay? That's the kind of subjection that is being called for for us Christians as we stand before human government. It says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So he addresses both the high up positions and the local government. So that would apply to us today that uh, we need to be subject to uh, the federal government and also to the state government and to our local uh, borough assembly, whatever context you're in wherever you live however your government is laid out the bible is commanding us to be subject to these authorities because not because they are good in everything that they do do you think caesar was good in everything that he did he's the one who ends up you know killing half of the people that we honor in the bible you know paul peter a lot of these guys lost their heads for being a christian at the hand of Caesar. It's not because Caesar is this great Christian fellow. That's not why you're to be subject to him. But you're to be subject to him because the position he holds is a God-ordained position. The position he holds, the government structure is God-ordained. And the Bible tells us that God brings up kings and he takes away kings. And, and whether you like the person or not sitting on the throne, they are there by the hand of God. God can take them away. He has the power. But he has chosen to let them be for his own purposes to unfold in time. And we, being subject to these rulers, it's a way of saying, Lord, we trust you. We trust your plan. That doesn't mean you, you know, withhold from voting. We are in a country where voting is you know, a part of the process. The people who set up this country set it up that way. Uh, In fact, it even calls on us at times to remove tyrants, you know, in the Constitution. There is a time and a place to remove them. Uh, So that makes things a little bit tricky when we're dealing with this, and we don't have time to really flesh all of that out. Um, There is a time and a place because our government documents, we are subject to them, and they tell us there is a time and place, you know, to throw off tyranny. And we put that in there because that's what we did. (laughs) You know, we can't say that if, you know, we want to justify what happened many, uh, several hundred years ago. So we live in a little bit different era. It's a little bit tricky because they lived under an emperor and he called the shots. There was no democracy here. You did not get your say. If the emperor called on you to do something, you did it. But Peter lays out a hierarchy here. He says, you are first and foremost subject in the kingdom of God to the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. You are united to him as living stones. You're built up as a priesthood. You have to honor him first. So if Caesar comes and tells you uh, to stop praying, you can't do that. Okay? He's not saying be subject to every single thing he says, no matter what end of story. No, you are first and foremost subject To God Almighty, to the Word of God, the Bible, to Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit. You are subject to to God. But Caesar, as an ordained position, anything that he tells you to to do that does not conflict with what God has commanded you to do, he's saying you've got to be subject to that, whether you like it or not. And this is hard for us, right? Especially right now. We live in a time where the government, uh, there are times where they overreach. There are times where we feel that they overreach, at least. Maybe they're not, but we feel that way. But he doesn't say, be subject if they're not overreaching. He just says, be subject to them. I remember when Jesus had to address this, they brought him a coin. They said, should we pay taxes? And he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. He's saying the same thing that Peter said. He just says it in a proverbial way that's real quick and fast. But he's saying, give Caesar what he asks for unless he specifically contradicts your king of kings. If he doesn't do that and there's a law laid down, then you got to do that. And I know right now there's a lot of suggestions that come out of the White House. And what's really tricky is you have local governing bodies that go against the federal government. And so while the federal government is telling you to do one thing, your local body, uh, local government is telling you to do something else. We don't have time to flesh that out here. This is very difficult for us. Um, but you have to make these decisions. I want you to wrestle with a theological basis with every decision that you make when it comes to political you know, obedience. When you're following the government, it should stem From your conviction that God is sovereign. God is ruler. God is king. and He sits on the throne. And when you respond to your local authority. It's because you are honoring your supreme authority. It says in verse 13. Be subject to every human institution. Every government for the Lord's sake. Or more directly translated because of the Lord. Because of God, be subject to the authorities. Because of God. You may feel like that's just not right. But some of that's because you're an American. Some of that's because of the political climate in which you've been raised in and your grandparents, and your great-great-grandparents were raised in. But I'm telling you what, if you lived in this day and age... You wouldn't feel so privileged to have your own rights and your own opinion on how to govern yourself. You did what Caesar did or what he said to do. And if God said otherwise, you did what God said to do knowing that Caesar was probably going to come and persecute you. You were probably going to go to jail. You were probably going to lose your head. And Peter's saying, you got to make that choice. As a Christian, you have to make that choice. There may come a time where to stand up for God's law and what God has laid out for us in his word, it will cost you dearly. It will cost you your job. It will cost you uh, your freedom. You may be locked in a cell. There may come a time in this country, and it may not be that far away, where you might even face uh, severe punishment for honoring Christ. I can see how it could unfold that way. You know, 20 years ago, I couldn't see how it was going to unfold that way. I'm starting to be able to see how it could go that way. Not saying it will, I'm saying it could. And when that time comes, if that time comes, we have to make a choice. Are we going to honor God as supreme or are we going to honor Caesar as supreme? For the Lord's sake. In verse 15, it goes even further into this. It says, for this is the will of God. If he hasn't already made it clear that you subjecting yourself to the government is because of God. He goes on and clarifies that really well here. He says, this is the will of God. If you want to know what the will of God is for your life? If you're on a quest to search out what the will of God is for your life, here it is. I'm going to give it to you. Pay your taxes. That's the will of God. And I know, I, I could see Jim just, uh, he hates it. I know, me too, me too. But it's the will of God. It is the will of God. Go the speed limit. It's the will of God. Don't keep foul-hooked fish. It's the will of God. It's what the governing authorities above you have said you need to do. Therefore, you got to do it for God's sake. And to disobey Caesar or fish and game or whoever the authority is we're speaking of that has been ordained, and instituted by God, he set them up, he's put them in place for us to have some kind of order here instead of anarchy, which is evil. Because of that, when we honor them and we obey them, we are honoring God and obeying God. It is the will of God. It goes on in verse 16. To say, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is a common theme in the Bible because people who come to know Jesus often experience a newfound freedom that they've never had before. They grew up in a culture that told them how to worship, and it told them to worship these various gods. And if you didn't worship these various gods, then you weren't A part of society. You didn't belong. And so everybody did. It's what they did. It was a social norm to worship these gods, to bow down to statues of the emperor. That was common. And now all of a sudden they've been converted to Christianity and they realize there's only one God. And now they don't have to go do that anymore. They've got free time on their hands because they don't have to go worship 70 gods today. They can give all their time to the one. They're free They don't have to go and sacrifice chickens at the altar of Asclepius to get physical healing anymore. Because now they just call out to God. And they let the elders of the church come and anoint them with oil and to pray over them. And that's where they find their healing. They don't have to be bound by all these rules and regulations of all of the foreign gods that they have grown up in. They've found a newfound freedom. And sometimes when people find newfound freedom... They let it get to their head and they start going crazy with it. Paul has to address uh, some of the women in the church because of this. You know, they realize that they now have freedom. They now have a voice. They now have value and worth. Whereas in society back then, women were degraded. And now they realize in the church that they're not so. Uh, but some of them took that to a far extreme and they started to domineer in the church. And Paul has to remind them that there is still social order in the church. And so he calls on them uh, to experience modesty or express modesty and to be uh, subject and submit to the authorities in the church. Same, same kind of thing is going on here. Christians that are growing up in Rome experience these newfound freedoms and they're going to take it to the extreme. And really, they're, they're starting to maybe live in an anarchist way. And Peter has to come and say, Listen. I know you're free, and it's good to be free, but you need to be subject to the governing authorities over you. The next thing we see is the limitation of self-justification. It says here in verse 18, Servants, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." In this passage, he starts out talking about the slave-master relationship. We don't have time to historically unpack that. I just want you to know it's different than the slave-master relationships that we have become accustomed with in our own national history. Um, Many people in Rome became slaves because they sold themselves into slavery in order to make ends meet. They were going to starve to death, so it was die or be a servant. probably looked more like in. Dentured servanthood than slavery that we typically think of. But that aside, Paul or Peter rather does not break down the social structure that exists. He just says, Hey, you've submitted to this person as a slave for whatever reason, whether it was coerced or whether it was voluntary, and he's saying, Be subject to them. Be subject to them. Why? says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one who endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. And he goes on to talk about how this suffering follows the example of Jesus Christ. And it goes back to having good conduct in the world and for the world to be able to see what you're doing. Peter's not telling new Christians with their new freedoms to rise up and start a revolution. That's not what he's saying. He's saying be subject and live a godly lifestyle so that people looking on will notice this and be compelled to buy into the Christian faith. That's what he's telling them to do. And he says, uh, "With God, mindful of God. I love that in verse 19. You do all this being mindful of God. A little side note here. Sometimes we do things for people we give food to the food bank or we help the old lady across the street or or we you know whatever it is your humanitarian efforts we do and later on when we're trying to think of what we did for God we try to apply godliness to some of those actions when really God wasn't a part of them in the process and I want to encourage you this morning that whenever you do something good it should stem from being mindful of God And when you do something like that, when you're mindful of God, it actually is Christian fruit. It's something that you're doing because you're a Christian. But if you just do something good and you are a Christian, but you're not mindful of God in any way, shape, or form when you're doing it, then it's not really a Christian fruit. Because even non-Christians do good works like that. But they're not Christian fruit because they don't stem from someone being mindful of God. But here he says all this subjection that you're supposed to undergo is because you are mindful of God. He says, be good and gentle and endure this even when it's unjust. He says, don't just obey your masters when they're good. Obey your masters and be subject to them when they are unjust. Obey your rulers when they're good and when they're unjust. Okay, because when you can obey... When they're unjust, it shows that you've got something bigger in your mind. You've got something better you're awaiting. That being getting even in this life is not what it's all about. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And when you try to get even with those above you, when you try to stick it to the man because he did you wrong, You're actually robbing God of his justice that he wants to measure out at the last day. Vengeance is mine, says God. But too many of us make it our own. It's not your job to make the government right. It's not your job to make your boss at work just. Sure, you can can call him to account if you want. But at the end of the day you're either subject to him or you find a new job at the end of the day you're either subject to the president or you leave the country i mean those are your those are your options the reason that we suffer not only for doing good but we suffer at the hands of the unjust is because it follows the example of Jesus. Jesus was perfect and yet he was brought before Pilate and he was questioned and he was questioned over and over and over and the Bible says that he did not answer a word. He was like a sheep going to the slaughter and he remained mute because he did not need to defend himself. God God would validate his claim as the Son of God and as the righteous one when he rose him from the grave. If you want to see justice, then you just wait for resurrection day. And when you are resurrected in body and you stand before the glorious King and he says, come in, my good and faithful servant, welcome into my peace, and those unjust people out there experience condemnation that will fall upon their heads on judgment day, then you'll be vindicated. Not by your own hands, not by your own mouth, not by your own thoughts, but by God Almighty. The last and final thing, we look and we see the limitation of self-sufficiency. This is a very rich and deep passage here that really we can't even do justice to right now. He says, Jesus Christ did not defend himself before the authorities that accused him. He stood up as a righteous man among unjust authorities. And he did not lift a finger. He did not fight back. He did not bring any kind of defense. But instead entrusted himself to the one in heaven. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When we keep our mouths shut and we abstain from self-defense and self-sufficiency, thinking that we can make everything right, and we just entrust it to God, it's at that moment that we glorify Him the most. I know some of us were raised not to take anything from anybody. And that if someone does us wrong, we return the blow. And we make it more harsh than ever. And we, we celebrate the fact that our country could be like that. Like if someone messes with us, we go and we take them out. That's the way it should be. I know some of us have that mentality. But I just want you to know on the individual level, as a Christian, that is no way that we should act. Christ was the manliest man of all time. And yet he did not vindicate himself. He did not defend himself, but rather he entrusted himself to God. Are you man enough this morning to do that? Are you man enough to subject yourself to authorities when they do not go against God? And even when they're unjust, even when you're mistreated, you can keep your mouth shut and honor God and glorify God and keep your conduct pure and holy before the world. If you can do that, then you have fallen into God's will this morning. And Peter wants the expanding church to have that temperament and that attitude as they live as king priests in the world, as the temple of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've blessed us with. We thank you for the challenge this morning. Lord, that no matter where we sit politically, we know that 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 Earthly politic is not the end-all be-all. But Lord, your kingdom and the principles for living within it should be our supreme guide. I pray this morning, Lord, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, may our conduct and our words glorify you in such a way that the outside world is compelled to believe. Lord, I pray that you would stir christians up to be active in their faith not passive lord but in every way that we would limit ourselves that we would die to ourselves and that we would honor and glorify you and that we would entrust ourselves to you and we pray all of this in the name of jesus christ our lord and savior amen